I have the text before you, the passage that we'll consider from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 1 through 14. will be the first of a series of sermons as we consider together the letter to the Ephesians. And so we'll read from verse 1 down to chapter 14, but mainly our consideration this morning will be the larger passage found within that, verses 3 through 14, which together form a a kind of paragraph, so to speak, in in the ancient Greek, in the original text. And so Hear now God's holy and inspired word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So far, the reading of God's word, may he write it upon our hearts and add his blessing to it as we meditate now upon this passage. I know this might come as a shock to some of you, especially you who are younger, but when the Apostle Paul wrote this letter and sent it to the Christians in the city of Ephesus, he did not post it on their Facebook page. He didn't send it via Snapchat. He didn't even send it in an email. No, rather... In the ancient way, he sent it by the hands of a friend, a companion of his in the ministry by the name of Tychicus. And Paul makes mention of him in chapter 6 at the close of his letter, saying that he was sending Tychicus to them to bring news of his well-being, etc. But we see that Paul sent Tychicus to them carrying this letter. I'm not sure if Paul meant it to be ironic or if it was just in the providence of God, 
but it's fascinating that the name Tychicus actually means lucky in ancient Greek. Now, why is that ironic? Well, here is a guy named Lucky who's carrying this letter to the Ephesians, the Ephesians who lived in a city of Ephesus where one of the many gods that these pagans worshipped was Lady Luck. Uh, And so they bowed down and would say to each other, good luck, but not just as an expression, but also as a form of prayer to the goddess Lady Luck. So on one hand you have that. On the other hand, here's this letter which is exalting with exuberant clarity the sovereignty of God over all things, which allows no room for luck at all, no room for coincidence or happenstance. So here comes a guy named Lucky, carrying and delivering a message that banishes completely the idea of luck in order to promote instead the perfect providence of God. We can imagine Tychicus, he's arriving at the main gathering of the church in Ephesus, reciting in front of the congregation the words of the Apostle Paul that we just read. These words that Paul penned, they put on center stage the eternally planned and purposed glorious grace of God in the gospel. Of the whole letter, of the, this letter to the Ephesians, this opening section here, especially verses 3 through 14, together form this magnificent paragraph. And I think, I believe it is the most thoughtful and poetically arranged portion of this letter. And it's slam-packed with significance, stacked with theology, abounding with goodness. Too much for us to consider all this morning. But why? Why does the Apostle Paul start off his letter in this way, with what is called doxology? Doxology, if you've heard that word before, it's a combination of two words in the Greek, doxa and logos. And so it's doxa means praise, logos means a word. So it's a word of praise, a word of praise. Why does he begin with a word of praise? It's especially interesting to ask that question because the Apostle Paul, when he wrote this letter, he was in a dark and dingy prison, right? So instead of hearing a complaint coming from the Apostle Paul right at the beginning, which we might expect from someone who's in the midst of suffering, in the midst of a dark and trying time. No, instead we hear the opposite. We hear coming from the prison cell, as it were, songs of praise from the very opening of this letter. Why? What purpose did he have starting off his letter in this way, with this doxology? Well, the purpose, the answer is simple. He wants to usher us into the same joyous praise of the glorious grace of God with him. He wants us to experience it and join him in praise of God. My former New Testament professor, Dr. Steve Baugh, an expert in the Greek language and also in Ephesus. In his commentary, he writes, Paul is opening his letter with genuine praise and wonder at God's lavish grace. And the subtext is that this praise teaches us how we should overflow with praise as well. To use a metaphor, it's like the Apostle Paul here. He's stepping in front of us, in front of the church, as a conductor of an orchestra of praise. Why? Well, because God's glory is not to be met with silence, but rather with the appropriate sound of joyous 
praise. If you've ever watched a good movie, one of the classic movies, uh, if you've watched it without music, without its musical score, it kind of falls flat a bit. Because silence, it doesn't do justice to the hard work and the artistry that the director and the actors and the editors all put into making the movie. And so a good score from a master composer, someone like John Williams, who wrote many of the songs, melodies for Jurassic Park, Harry Potter, uh, and many other fantastic movies. Well, that music, he can't make a movie good, but it can lift that movie to reach its fullest expression. And so Paul here, he's kind of like John Williams conducting the church in praise, in the theater of God's glorious grace. Because the gospel of God, it deserves the best musical score, the best accompaniment, a glorious society of the redeemed, forever magnifying the majesty of his saving grace. So that's what Paul wants here. He wants us to join with him in blessing God, that is, praising his name. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit for his lavish love that he's displayed in the gospel. And this text shows us what each person of the Holy Trinity has done for us in the story of redemption, to redeem and renew us. And first we see the Father's predetermined plan. The Father's predetermined plan. Throughout this passage, Paul, he's emphasizing how God has taken the initiative to save us. He says here that the Father chose us in Him, that is the Son, before the foundation of the world. And then he further adds that He predestined us. Well, what does this mean? What does this language mean? Well, it's pretty clear, right? He's saying it plainly to us. It means that before setting out to create the entire universe, all things visible and invisible, before time itself existed, when there was only God, God chose from the whole human race a certain number of persons to redeem in Christ. And this is the biblical doctrine that we believe and hold to of predestination and election. Those terms are not made up in the 16th century. They're terms that are taken directly out of passages like the one that we find here in Ephesians. Paul tells us more about this reality in the verses that follow. He tells us what God's motive in doing this was. He says, in love, he predestined us. You see this doctrine, it's not a cold, abstract act of God or an impersonal force. No, this is our personal God in an act of love, choosing to save some with his inexpressible grace. You see, God was moved to choose some, including you, if you believe in Jesus, not because you were lovely in his sight, no, but rather he loved you with the goal of making you lovely in Jesus. And that's why Paul says that we should be holy and blameless before him. He didn't choose us because we are already holy and blameless in his sight. No, he chose us with the purpose of making us holy and blameless before him. What God said to Israel back in Deuteronomy 7 now applies to the church, all the elect in Jesus. Deuteronomy 7, the Lord says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. 
for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loves you. That's the reason why he chose some. Because he loves you. You see, predestination, it is rooted in the love of God. God who is love. And Paul also tells us not only his motive, but God's intention in electing some, saying he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The meaning behind this, it's, it's deeper than our modern understanding and application of what adoption is. In the Greco-Roman world in the first century, if a man was a prominent man with a lot of power and authority and wealth, if he did not have his own biological son to give over and entrust all that he had won and earned, his reputation and his name, his estate and all his affairs, if he didn't have his own biological son, what would he do? Well, he would adopt for himself a son to be his heir, his heir. And so we see that adoption in the ancient context was, was connected with inheritance. So let me ask you this. If you were to pick somebody, a person, to bear your name into the future after you're dead and gone, how would you pick that person? What qualifications would you look for? What qualities would you want to find in this person? What conditions would you set? You probably want someone naturally with a good reputation, that has good qualities, someone who's wise, generally a good guy that you can entrust everything to. That's natural. But that's not what God did with us. Dr. Baugh, he says, in the case of believers, God has taken the most distant foreigners to be his kin for inheritance of his whole estate, not the deserving or good, not many well-born, powerful or wise, but those who were, by nature, children of wrath, sons of disobedience. And God does not place these new sons in a subordinate, inferior family. No, he appoints them all to become co-heirs with his natural firstborn son. This act of divine grace, Voss says, surpasses even the unthinkable idea of the Roman emperor adopting a slave from the most barbaric hinterlands to be the next emperor. It's even more scandalous than that, what God has done for us in choosing us with the intention of adopting us and making us heirs with Christ. And this is uplifting. This is uplifting. You know, in life, um, even as, as you're a teenager, a young adult, when you're the object of somebody else's love and affection, it's uplifting. It's encouraging to be the object of someone else's love. Well, remember that you are the object of God's eternal love in Christ. Before the foundation of the world, he set his heart upon you in love. How uplifting is that? How encouraging is that? Lastly, here with the Father, Paul shows us what was the basis for this decision of love by saying that he decided this, he made this decision according to his own good pleasure. That is, God's purpose in himself the purpose was found within him, not in us. The purpose was in himself to elect a certain people, not because of anything good that he found in them, either actual or foreseen, but solely because it pleased God to do it. That's why. So Paul here, he's, he's showing us the true identity of who God is, ruling upon his throne. And as clear as this teaching is in this text, 
many people don't like it. One author, uh, author um, A.W. Pink, he writes this. He says, men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion the worlds and make the stars. They will allow him to be in his storehouse to bestow upon people bounties. But when God ascends his throne, his creatures then gnash their teeth. For God on his throne is not the God they love. But it is God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon the throne whom we trust. The loved ones, this is what God the Father, ruling and reigning in his sovereignty, has done to lavish us with his grace. From eternity past, he had predestined to save us. He had a predetermined plan of salvation. Now what about the Son? What has the Son of God done? The Son had a purposeful, or made a purposeful purchase. Paul says that the Father has blessed us in the Beloved, that is, in his Son. Then he goes on to say that in him we have redemption through his blood. Well, the word redemption, what does it imply? It implies captivity or enslavement to something. You redeem those who are enslaved. What were we enslaved to? Well, in brief, the penalty and the power of sin. The penalty and the power of sin. We were enslaved, unable to free ourselves, completely bound. What was the cost for our freedom? Well, the cost was the very blood of Jesus shed for us. In order to free us from sin's penalty and power, Jesus took it all upon himself on the cross in his body. Back in Exodus 6, when God was about to take his people out of Egypt, he said this, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from the slavery to them and I will redeem you with outstretched arms and with great acts of judgment. And so too, we see in the gospel of Jesus that with outstretched arms nailed to the cross and with all the judgment of God, which we deserve falling upon him, Jesus redeemed us from the full penalty and power and guilt of our sin. And so we praise him in song, do we not? I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross he suffered from the curse to set me free. Sing, O oh, sing of my Redeemer with his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and made me free. He paid the ultimate cost for our redemption. And what was the consequence of this redemption? Well, Paul enumerates some blessings that we receive. First, the forgiveness of our trespasses. All our sin, past, present, and future, are forgiven. Forgiven us by the blood of Christ which was shed in our place. Not only that, we've been made part of God's purposeful plan to unite all things in Jesus. Things in heaven and things on earth, Paul says. And so the mystery that was once hidden in ages past in the Old Testament, the mystery that God would eventually not only redeem Israel, but also Gentiles from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Well, that mystery has now been revealed. It has now been displayed in the gospel of Christ. And so we have been brought in and united, and Jesus is forming a new human race, a new society of the redeemed, 
by the power of his blood. And Paul will elaborate that on that in the next chapters as we go forward in our study of this letter. And lastly, as a consequence of this redemption, not only are we free and forgiven, but again, we have been fortuned with God's kingdom. Because, as, because of Jesus, we are now on a list that is better and more privileged than the Fortune 500, the list of the top 500 uh, gross in, uh, uh, companies that are making the most money in this nation. We have obtained, Paul says, an inheritance of God's rich grace that will never fade or diminish. And so we can get down to earth here and just apply this a little bit more to our hearts and what this means for us, that each of us, right, each of us throughout life are working and striving towards trying to earn worth and legitimacy. We're striving for affirmation from other people. We're all striving to construct an identity for ourselves that has value, but because of the captivity of sin and its power over us, we're never free to fully achieve what we so long for, and we constantly fall short of the glory of God. No matter how much energy and effort we put into it, we never arrive, we never receive the affirmation from others that we so long for. And all that selfish striving for our own glory to make a name for ourselves, all of that deserves punishment. Deserves God's justice against our narcissistic ways. But here we see that Jesus, he's paid the ultimate price. The Son of God gave up his own life, his own blood, in order to give us an identity and a worth that only God himself can bestow. There's truly no other, think about this, there's truly no other position or place with more dignity, more value, more worth than to be seated with Christ in the high heavenly places as a child of God and an heir of his eternal kingdom. It is the highest place of honor that you can be seated at. And so you want worth, you want legitimacy, you want significance, well here it is, it's found in Jesus, in him alone. But first you have to be humbled. Because you can't, at the end of the day, earn it or boast that you want it. No, you have to receive it as a free gift given to you by Jesus himself. You have to ask for forgiveness and receive all that he has, saying, I have no worth but Jesus. He is my hope and my righteousness. And if you can abandon your self-worth, well, Jesus, he will lavish you with all of his wonderful worth. He is worthy, so trust in him. That is what the Son of God has done to lavish us with his grace. He has purposefully purchased us with his own blood. Lastly, let's consider briefly the Holy Spirit and what he's done. Paul shows us here that the Spirit, he comes to us as the promised pledge. The Spirit, he's, he's sent as the seal of God's eternal love for us. In the first century, the seal, it was used to close up a scroll to, as a wax seal to close it up, to authenticate it, and also show who it belonged to. It would often bear a signet or a sign indicating who it belonged to. And so the Spirit himself, he comes, the Spirit is the seal of God upon us. And he functions as the authentication of God's love, the guarantee of our inheritance, saying that we belong to God. And how does he do this? How does he assure us of what we have in Jesus? Well, first, with the deposit. The Spirit accompanies the proclamation of the gospel, the preaching of the word of God, 
And he grants through it faith and repentance to the elect. He deposits in our hearts truth and the hope of glory. And secondly, he gives us a down payment of our inheritance. The Greek word for guarantee found in our text, it can be translated down payment or also first installment. And so like the first installment on on a home, you, you put your down payment on it, it's a partial payment of your promise to give more in the future. And the presence of the Spirit at work in our hearts is that promise, the promise that there is more to come that God will give us through Christ. He dwells in our hearts as a partial gift, the first part of the full inheritance that will be given to us on the last day when Jesus returns. But He doesn't come with us without desire, without intention. He comes with a desire to make us here and now, holy and blameless, more and more, until the day of Christ Jesus. He comes to effect change, to dwell within us, to transform us, to renew us, because He is the agent of the new creation. He is powerfully bringing to us the power of Jesus' death and resurrection, making us new day by day, preparing us for that day of glory. And so this is what the Spirit of God has done for us and continues to do for us according to God's promises. He is the promised pledge of God's lavish grace. Now, as we conclude, I want you to imagine here, I want you to imagine taking your kids, maybe you've done this before, taking your kids to see one of the wonders of the world. Say, for, exi- for instance, Niagara Falls, the Grand Canyon, why, why do you take them there? Why do we as parents want to take and bring our kids to such wonderful places in God's creation? Well, you hope, right, that it will fill them with a sense of awe and wonder to make them focus on things bigger and better than themselves. But imagine that as you arrive and your children get out of the car and they take a look at the Grand Canyon or the Niagara Falls and they look at it for a moment and say... Ah, it's not that great. They turn their back to it and then put their head back in their phones or on their tablets to look at the screen again on their smartphones. How would you feel if that happens? How would you feel? You would feel at once sad, angry, and bewildered. Sad because you want your kids to see the beauty before them and recognize it with humility angry because something less worthy has stolen their attention and perhaps their heart and you see it captive to that thing bewildered because if something so wonderful so awesome cannot capture their attention what else can you do and so loved ones that is what the apostle paul he's doing in this passage for us that's what he's done for us he's like a father that has brought us to one of the greatest wonders the greatest wonder of the world god's grace in the gospel and god wants our heart's attention he wants to wow us with his grace and his love he wants to fill us with a sense of his beauty and majesty he wants us to know that that is for us in love his gift in a word paul wants us to experience a fullness of the good news of the gospel so that we would join him in doxological praise of god's grace, our triune God, even if we're in the darkest and dingiest place in our life, a trying circumstance, we can still thank God for what we have in Christ. 
that we have more than we can ever ask, think, or imagine. And like that master conductor, Paul, he wants us to join in the praise of God's grace. The messenger of this letter might have been named Lucky, but the message he brought banishes all luck to display in its place God on his throne, ruling with absolute power. In the inexplicable time before time, the Father set his love upon you. The Son committed himself, body and soul, to win you for himself and as, as an adopted child of God. And the Holy Spirit has determined to be for you an everlasting seal of all that Jesus purchased by his own blood on the cross, a guarantee of more to come. May we live to the praise of God's glorious grace all the days of our life. Amen. Let's pray.